1: Yeah, Michelle, we're we're getting a nice view of your living room. Can you share your collection of classified documents with us, just to take a peek? We can we can compare stacks, see who's see who's who's inching higher at this point.
0: See, see, so you laugh, but I've always been low enough on the totem pole that if I even sort of inadvertently had classified information, like in an email, I would go to prison. And that's sort of the you know that's sort of the I think the big discrepancy in a lot of these things. You have people. You know, if you're high enough in the institution, your possession of classified documents outside the ordinary parameters is not taken nearly as seriously as if you're an NCO in the military who, you know, potentially miscarries something.
1: I will say, you know, having worked overseas in an embassy without going into any inappropriate levels of detail there, there are such over the top procedures for even if you were to inadvertently like leave a classified document to be printed on a printer and fail to clear it before you leave. And then if you may have an offense, you are briefed by fully armed Marines uh, in (laughs) battle gear with assault (laughs) rifles who come into your office.
2: And if you answer wrong, they shoot you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It is, it is an intimidation campaign. And I'm like, all right, maybe, maybe we should have pursued that philosophy a little more, broadly geographically and higher up the totem pole to get a little more uh, discipline in this classified documents game.
2: I will say, I mean, that there were a lot of jokes when it turned out that Pence had classified documents in his home that, you know, Jimmy Carter, Dan Quayle were going to start, you know, opening cabinets and classified documents <laughs> were going to pour out. And then there was a report in Reuters that uh, not recently, I think this was soon after he left the presidency, Jimmy Carter actually did discover classified documents that were erroneously <laughs> brought <laughs> back to his home so it truly is everyone is doing it
0: i feel bad for like the staffer like the poor mover who basically was like told you know clean out this safe and he did and then all of a sudden you know he's getting interviewed by the fbi or marines with firearms and being questioned about his uh activities for the vice presidents but this is a little dark for b-roll <laughs> <laughs> it's a little heavy for b That's a fair point. I mean it's a fair point.
1: <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I'm here with one of my other co-hosts, not two, unfortunately, this week, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. But in Alan Rosenstein's stead, we are thrilled to have with us lawyer extraordinaire, counsel for the Military Commission's Defense Office, partner at Curtis Millet Provost. We are thrilled to have with us lawfare friend and contributor, Michelle Paradis. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us here again on Rational Security. Thanks so much for having me back. At this point, I will say you are fortunate that I did not leave any gym clothes in the state of New York during a pandemic this time, so I think this is a much easier intro, hopefully this time. There's no additional obligations into coming on the show to discuss the return of my uh, gym clothes of discarded uh, dirty shorts and Sue shoes, so thrilled to have you on under no means of coercion this time.
0: I'm happy to be here completely voluntarily with nothing hanging over my head. Well,
1: we are excited to have you here to talk about some stories that have been perkling in the national security news sphere. For what We are going to call, in honor of one of those stories, the M1 Abrams Accord edition, because we've seen a breakthrough on some talks about some tanks. We've seen some interesting steps being taken by the Treasury Department and some even more interesting steps being taken by your home state, the Empire State, New York. So let's dig into it this week. Our first topic, don't tank my chain. Western allies of Ukraine have finally agreed to a way forward in providing the country with tanks, an issue that has proven surprisingly contentious in recent weeks. Germany will now allow its Leopard's tanks to be used in the near term, while the United States will send Ukraine a series of M1 Abrams tanks in the future, meeting the German demand for a matched U.S. contribution. Why was this so important to Germany, and what does it tell us about the broader state of the war? Topic two, Slight of the Valkyries. The U.S. Treasury Department has slapped new sanctions on the Russian mercenary group, the Wagner Group, or the Wagner Group. Not sure how to pronounce that. I'm going to go with the Wagner Group for the purpose of my pun, labeling them a transnational criminal organization or TCO. Even as U.S. officials continue to resist calls to designate them a terrorist organization, what explains this reticence? Is it warranted? And topic three: Empire State of Mind. For the first time, the New York City District Attorney is trying someone under state criminal laws barring material support for terrorism that the state adopted following the September 11th attacks. Even though the criminal defendant in question was never present in New York, at least while committing the offenses, but merely knew his actions would have repercussions there, is this a sensible move or is there a reason for pause? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started.
2: All right. So earlier this month, the UK announced that it would be sending tanks to Ukraine, uh, fulfilling a long-held request by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky that Ukraine's Western allies had previously declined to fulfill. Um, And then after a great deal of dithering, and I truly cannot Emphasize Just how much dithering there was. Uh, Germany decided to go along with the UK and uh, we're recording this at one fourteen pm on Wednesday, I think just about an hour before we recorded. President Biden also announced that the United States would be sending tanks. This seems to have opened the floodgates because the New York Times reported that uh, Finland, the Netherlands, and Spain are also sending tanks, and Poland has said that uh, it's requesting Germany's permission to send German-made tanks, the very evocatively named leopards, as well. So there are a lot of tanks heading to Ukraine. I think... My main question here, there's a lot to talk about specifically with what on earth is going on in the brain of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz with all of the aforementioned dithering. But I'm really curious what you both make of what has changed in the war such that the West is now sort of falling over itself to supply Ukraine with tanks, given that previously there were a lot of concerns about whether Russia might interpret that as overly aggressive and whether it might take the war in a really dangerous direction. Michel, as as the guest, let me turn it over to you first.
0: So there's been this long-running debate since the beginning of the Ukraine war over the kinds of weapons that we're willing to give Ukraine that we see as not being essentially excessively provocative to Russia. And you often hear this described in terms of defensive versus offensive weapons. And you might remember at the very beginning of the war, there was a lot of debate over whether or not airplanes uh, should be sent to Ukraine. And uh, I think a pretty legitimate concern from a defense standpoint that if you're beginning to send aircraft to Ukraine, aircraft can go into Russian proper territory, actual Russian territory, not acquired territory, fairly easily. And so if the West, particularly the United States, is seen as providing what could be described as offensive support to Ukraine, that could give Russia two basic rationales for escalating the war in ways that might be unpredictable. One is, it would start suffering losses in its own proper Russian territory. And and there's every reason to think that even compared to sort of its titular claim, whatever its claims, uh, over places like the Donbass, if bombs started dropping in Moscow, there would be a much different public reaction within Russia and and what Russia felt itself compelled to do in order to maintain public support and public face. And just as significant, though, is that if you have weapons that even have that capability coming from the territory of NATO countries, Russia would be well within its rights, um, as a matter of international law to essentially try and go upstream and even launch attacks and be at least given a, a legal and perfectly defensible basis to launch attacks against Uh, NATO countries that could then trigger Article 5 obligations. And so the offensive versus defensive line has always been, I think, despite a lot of criticisms and people making jokes about it, I think actually fairly carefully calibrated to essentially put some limits on what Russia can plausibly claim are legitimate bases of its own to attack NATO countries, um, and then escalate the war. And so I think tanks have always been part of that because tanks do so, fall somewhere in the middle between offensive and defense. You know, unlike the the HIMARS, which, as I understand it, we actually provide Ukraine with certain software that limits their, their their geographical range so that they can't launch into Russia proper. You know, tanks tanks can go anywhere you drive them, and there is, I think, certainly a legitimate concern that you know Ukrainian uh, efforts to essentially mount armored offensives to retake Ukrainian territory could very quickly escalate into Ukrainian advances into actual Russian territory. And what control the United States or other NATO countries would have over that is pretty unclear, right? Ukraine is a sovereign country, they have their own military objectives. It might actually be from a military, purely military standpoint, uh, an entirely rational calculation for uh, Ukraine to try and take vulnerable Russian territory as a way of negotiating back some of the territory that Russia had taken, which is easier for Russia to defend against a Ukrainian counterattack. So I think there are a lot of legitimate concerns about essentially escalating the character of material, including what are now, I think, we, I think we're sending like an armored brigade, effectively, uh, to Ukraine of these Abrams tanks. And then obviously these German tanks, which I think are going to be a little more useful to the Ukrainians. That's a legitimate concern. That's something to be thoughtful over. And even though I don't think there's any reflection of a waning of support for Ukraine uh, over time, I do think there has been just, again, a very cautious approach to escalating the capabilities the Ukrainian government are able to, to wield in fighting off what is for them, obviously, an existential threat from Russia.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with everything that Michelle think Gray usually recapitulated there. And I'm going to add another layer to it. This really, I think, shows some of the weird nuclear logic that layers on top of some of the strategic questions, particularly for European allies, right? Because we saw a situation where Germany pretty clearly, it seems, and they haven't quite said this, but they haven't – they've said things that fall only a little bit short of this, said essentially, look, we don't want to be the ones out on the hook providing a potentially offensive system, a system that – is of a new order to the Ukrainians because we're worried about Russian repercussions. And they're particularly worried about Russian repercussions to some extent because they are, while they are a major military, they have a lot of major military capabilities. They're a NATO member, obviously. The one thing they are not that other members of the Western Alliance backing Ukraine is, is a nuclear power. And that's one thing that Russia is. So then we saw In the few weeks leading up to this agreement, actually, other European nuclear powers say, well, we we will send tanks as well. We saw the UK government say, we're going to send some of our Challenger tanks. We saw the French government say, in a few months, we're going to try and transfer some of our lighter combat tanks. Uh, And then they're discussing now some of their heavier models, I guess the Leclerc model. I don't know. I think that my understanding is that they're a little heavier. I couldn't be wrong about that. But another model that they may be sending along down the road. These agreements were kind of in place to try and get the Germans on board and be more comfortable saying we're not moving forward on our own. But even though those are both nuclear powers, that didn't seem to be enough to m- mitigate some of Germany's concern in this regard. And it kind of makes sense, because while those are both nuclear powers, neither one is a nuclear power on the scale, on the effectiveness and operational capability of the United States, is, which is probably the closest uh, parallel to Russia – And so that's why Germany needed this buy-in. And I think we've seen this logic time and time again in regards to S-16s previously, in regards to a variety of other systems where European powers don't just want a collective security umbrella. They don't just want a nuclear security umbrella. They want a U.S. nuclear security umbrella alongside of this or strong signs of it. And that seems to be what's kind of being extended here in a way. The United States isn't going to be delivering any Abrams tanks for months and months, if not years down the line. They said, we're going to order new ones that have to be produced to send to Ukraine. The tanks are going over immediately are These Leopard tanks, which are coming from Germany, and then Germany is authorizing the transfer of tanks from other countries to which it has sold the Leopard tanks and controls re-export rights to go and to fill out these kind of tube battalions of 70 tanks i think they're trying to field and be able to go forward so that's the short term what's going to come out um in the longer term though that u.s participation seems to be a core element of kind of mitigating the perceived risk for germany whether that's a real risk whether they're worried about domestic audiences i'm a little less clear than that because it's not you know it doesn't seem like the most airtight way to mitigate a risk russia would respond against germany but not against other members of the alliance but i'm not sure the last thing i would note here is in terms of what they do beyond ukraine I am very confident they will have re-export restrictions on how these weapons can be used. That's pretty common in these sort of arms sale situations where the contract that is used to transfer these weapons will say, hey, you can or can't use them for these purposes with or without US or German or whoever permission. Um, And so my guess is that they say they can't be used outside of Ukraine. Does that include Crimea? Does it include Donetsk and Luhansk? Those are the hard questions. I strongly suspect they say they can't be used against Russia. Now, that just depends on Ukraine complying with that agreement, and then whatever leverage the exporter might have afterwards in terms of resupply, parts, maintenance, other diplomatic pressure to force them to comply with that. So it's not the tightest agreement. That certainly is not giving them the capability. But I feel like that's going to be part of the the deal in terms of what Ukraine is getting limits on how they can use these weapons.
0: I think one thing to keep in mind, though, is that you know support for the Ukrainians is – you know, I think pretty significant in Europe, surprisingly so, given how much, particularly countries like Germany, are actually having to to shoulder you know real costs in terms of energy prices um, as a consequence of their country's support for Ukraine. But Olaf Scholz is held, heading a coalition government that is pretty pretty left wing and pretty dovish, and and supporting Ukraine with heavier artillery, including tanks, is actually not popular in Germany. Um, I came across one poll that said anywhere from you know, only about a third to at most a little less than a half of Germans even support sending tanks to Ukraine. There is, I think, a, a genuine cultural concern about escalation, and just a general cultural concern about, you know, the legacy of the last time that Russia and Germany were involved in a war in Ukraine. Um, that's something that Russia has used to great uh, propaganda value in its own conflict. And I think it is something that Germans are just very naturally going to be sensitive to having having that thrown into their face so I do think there's you know a, there's a domestic politics to a lot of these international politics that goes on as well and it's 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 tricky it's a really tricky it can be a really tricky balance particularly for the leader of uh, essentially a, a left-wing coalition government that is not automatically going to be favorably disposed to projecting German military strength uh, in Eastern Europe to begin with
2: and so is is your understanding then that that's kind of what is behind the weird psychodrama of Olaf Scholz? Maybe I'm being a, a little too harsh here, but I will say in trying to figure out what was going on with Germany's view here, I was deeply confused and then felt a little bit better when I saw that... Um, Politico had an article essentially saying that all of their staff was also deeply confused. (laughs) So to (laughs) what extent is this like Schultz personally? To what extent is it Schultz kind of grappling understandably with internal domestic German political concerns?
0: Uh, I think you would need a mind reader to fully figure that out. But I do think you can't. I, I mean, I think one of the reasons why it took the United States to actually send over Abrams tanks, which are you know, for a lot of reasons, I'm happy to get into not ideal, even for Ukrainian purposes, was I don't think Germany, I think Germany and Olaf Scholz in particular did not want to be seen as leading an effort to export essentially a new fighting capability or a a, a significant escalation in the fighting capability that Ukraine now has at its disposal against Russia. Um, To the extent the Germans are sort of doing it and sort of going along with all of the other NATO countries that are doing it, particularly the United States, I think that does provide a certain Level of political cover to critics within his own government and you know, frankly, his own people, um, who might be concerned that Germany is being, you know, is bearing a lot more of the costs of uh, the support for Ukraine than the United States is. But you know, I mean, how, how that's all being weighed out in Olaf Schultz's mind? I am, I am by no means the person to to psychoanalyze the head of state of Germany.
2: I will just say, Scott, I'm, I am curious for your thoughts, but. I what I really want to see is for Olaf Schultz and Senator Chris Coons to swap places one day, um, and then we could see if anybody would actually notice because they look frighteningly similar.
1: I, I hope Chris is really, really good German. That's the one, the one angle of the area. or and then Olaf can really pull off that Connecticut accent. Otherwise, you know, those vowel sounds are killer. <laughs> it may be a bit of a challenge to pull off the ruse, uh, but i would be intrigued. I'll say one say, thing about this German, because I think so you think the Germans have gotten a little unfair criticism in this regard, which is that they if you read most of their comments, a lot of their comments are v- in a very German way, and I like this about Germans, and, so, and I sympathize with it, so this is maybe me defending them more, is perhaps warranted, but in a very German kind of Einstein, Einstein, here is the, what we do, we build it one stone at a time, method building way of thinking about things, they're actually walking them through their internal legal process for approving these tanks. Because they basically said, no, we don't anticipate any problems on this, but in the end, the chancellor is going to have to decide for the country. And that actually is their legal process. Like There's a committee of advisors that votes on it, it goes to a cabinet or kind of like a subcommittee on the cabinet, it seems like, but then the chancellor has to sign off on it. And I suspect this is the fact that you have, as Michelle's, I think, very aptly noted already, A lot of people who are kind of uncomfortable with this sort of decision making here and making clear like this is a political determination being made by the leader of this party and the leader of this government and not not wanting to individually shoulder a kind of unorthodox portion of it. It's also a little different from the United States operates because we have a kind of like very unitary executive minded executive driven foreign policy and defense policy in particular we tend to pre-clear these things. So it's rare that, you know, you don't get the White House and Defense Department a, not a, on a big decision like this, you know, one getting ahead of the other or kind of telegraphing messages until they've already reached an internal decision. They have to do something. And at that point, like there aren't really strict, rigorous internal processes about that that are transparent to the outside. So we're used to the executive once a decision is made, being able to say, oh, here's the decision. We're going to move forward with this. I don't think Germany had had done through gone through that process yet. And I don't think they're as comfortable with uh, having that sort of decision making process that clean, clear, well, there's still a process we have to go through, but we think this is where we're leading on this. So I think that's the cause of a lot of the confusion. I, I think there was obviously like a turnover in administrative defense in Germany. There's a lot of chaos going on earlier, but for the last week or two, I actually think Germany's been reasonably consistent, given that it, it was an ongoing negotiation. Obviously, people's lives were kind of lines were budging a bit. So just I'm stepping into the defense of the Germans to some extent. I get what you were trying to do, Germany. I like process too. God bless you. You you process monkeys, you.
2: So if so much of this decision-making is about Russia's potential response, how has Russia actually responded? Is it is this a, a nothing burger, or is this something that we should really be concerned about?
1: Well, so the statements I've seen from Russian officials are, I think, what Germany kind of expected or feared in terms of a statement. Although, again, I think we have to question what is behind it. Russian officials basically have come out and said, well, this crosses all red lines. There's no such thing as a red line anymore, I think is the actual quote I saw or something to that effect. And then they specifically invoked you know, Nazi tanks rolling into Russia you know, prior to World War II in the midst of World War II. So exactly what you would kind of expect, right? Then again, strategically, that's exactly how we would expect Russia, whatever it, its actual red line or strategic calculus might be, to signal to Germany and to Europe saying, Oh, every step you take to help Ukraine further is another major escalation and may push us towards really taking dramatic steps. I personally very much doubt this actually changes the strategic calculus much for Russia. Um, The United States has dramatically ratcheted up its sort of support for Ukraine in terms of technology, in terms of dual use weapons, in terms of having both offensive and defensive capabilities. We've seen the HiMars system being implemented really dramatically. And hitting targets in far eastern Ukraine, Ukrainian territory, um, very close to the border. So – and that hasn't really budged Russia's primary red lines that we care about, which is about taking military action outside of Ukraine. And I don't expect this is going to cross that line because they know once they do that, they've kicked open Pandora's box. And there's a lot more the West could do to back Ukraine or to involve themselves in this conflict if that box really gets kicked open. Maybe there'll be little provocations. I'm sure there'll be more rhetorical fire. Maybe they'll you know, clamp down on grain deals and things like that. But in terms of those fundamental red lines, I kind of doubt this changes it. And I will say part of that is probably because you're going to see a lot of signaling coming from Americans, Germans, and Europeans to Russia saying, we're not authorizing the Ukrainians to use this against Russians in Russian territory. This is just about Russia, although maybe Crimea, maybe Donetsk and Luhansk. Well, going from some measures against Russia overseas, let's go to some measures against Russia at home, because we have seen the United States' own Treasury Department take an interesting step this past week. We, I think at this podcast, listeners will already be familiar with the Wagner Group, the Russian mercenaries, quasi-state, although I think technically independent, paramilitary organization that uses and sends former Russian soldiers and soldiers from other places as well to different corners of the world as private security contractors, heavily involved in Syria and other fronts supporting Russian military and political endeavors. Now heavily, heavily engaged in Ukraine on the ground uh, as kind of a corollary alongside regular Russian military forces, kind of famously in recent weeks has been recorded trying to recruit additional soldiers from Russian prisons, um, saying you will get or out of prison early and a stipend if you come join the Wagner group, um, and then brutally murdering some of them when they uh, defected, uh, as was reported uh, recently in in some newspapers with some really disturbing stories and footage. A pretty brutal organization um, that has been tied to humanitarian abuses and terrible military movements really around the world, and that we've seen a lot of people arguing more steps need to be taken against. This step by the Treasury Department is probably the biggest one of those. They've now labeled the Wagner Group a transnational criminal organization, a TCO, um, which invokes a sanctions regime under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act that blocks its assets and imposes potential penalties on people that engage it in ways that I think is most usefully described as material support, basically support its activities in various ways. But they haven't taken the steps some people have urged to actually designate it a foreign terrorist organization, which is a kind of longstanding statutory designation regime for terrorist groups that often gets the most attention of these different regimes. Nor have they taken steps to designate it, especially designated global terrorists, which is the separate IEPA-based sanctions regime for terrorist organizations. Michelle, I know you've spent some time with these different regimes, thinking over them, dealing with them over in the past. Uh, I know you've been following this story a little bit. Tell us what your thinking is. Why do we see this reticence around these terrorism designations? And do you think it's warranted? And how much does this TCO designation get to the same place, perhaps?
0: Uh, in certain, like just straightforward practical steps, it does get to a very similar place as having had Wagner and Pogosian put onto the designated national list under the terrorism regime. Um, as some of your listeners probably know, you know you have the I- overall IEPA regime, which was the is essentially the statutory successor to the trading with the enemy Act. And under that, there are various essentially programs all created by executive order that are designed to target particular either countries, so Iran, Sudan, North Korea, or sort of categories of transnational malign activity. Uh, Terrorism is obviously a big one, but global Magnitsky is is sort of part of this IEP regime to some extent. You have President Obama in 2011 created a transnational uh, criminal uh, organization list that has everything from the Zetas to the the mafia on it. So where precisely a individual gets designated or organization gets designated is, you know, of a generally not significant practical effect. The practical effects of being listed at all in one of these regimes are basically the same because it puts you under IEPA's civil and criminal. Penalties, which are incredibly significant, if the government chooses to enforce them, the practical effects can be different because uh, the Office of Foreign Asset Control (OFAC) uh, creates various licenses, basically exceptions to the sanctions regimes uh, that are more or less tailored to each individual sanctions regime. So, some have essentially broader licenses for medical supplies, technology transfers, providing mail, um, NGO support, religious activities, etc., that aren't necessarily present in another, uh, or at least not present with the same scope as in another. But as a practical matter, being a transnational criminal organization versus an international terrorist organization, um, for IEPA purposes, is not going to have a ton of practical significance. But what is practically significant, I would say are two things. One is the symbolic value of the terrorism designation. And for reasons that I candidly don't understand, I I don't really have any insight into, uh, the Biden administration has been reticent to use the T word, Uh, for the Wagner group they've done, uh, or for Russia, generally, despite a lot of Senate pressure, for example, to have Russia declared a state sponsor of terrorism. But the Biden administration has resisted the T word uh, when it comes to Russian activities, uh, and including the Wagner group, because, you know, by all appearances, the Wagner group is a terrorist organization. I don't know if you uh, got a chance to read the New York Times sort of deep dive into the Russian more that they did about a month ago. You know, but one of the things they talk about are these essentially snuff films that uh, the Wagner Group was releasing, uh, executing deserters that you know are straight out of ISIS playbook. And I, I certainly think would give any reasonable person the intuition that they are a terrorist organization, with the single exception, and I hope this is not true. I don't think it's true, but uh, with the single exception that they're white and they're not Muslims. And you know, I think the if if they were a Muslim. Uh, mercenary army, I think the designation of them as a terrorist organization probably would have happened long ago. But the other practical effect of avoiding terrorism, and then more importantly, the foreign terrorist organization designation, which is different, is that there's a lot of resources already in place, law enforcement, interagency resources, intelligence resources that are earmarked for terrorist organizations that aren't necessarily earmarked for international criminal organizations, Uh, various people with specialized knowledge in various fields are, are going to be working on counterterrorism issues that might not uh, be then available to counter uh, transnational criminal organization uh, investigations. And then finally, the most, I think, practical effect, though, it has nothing to do with IEPA sanctions. But it's also the Foreign Terrorist Organization designation, which is an entirely separate regime that is under the auspices of the State Department. And that's very significant because of the criminal penalties that carry from that unlike the IEPA sanctions regime, where someone has to have essentially some kind of tie to the United States, right? These are are sanctions that are primarily directed at, for example, banking institutions. The FTO designation triggers the material support laws. And those are extraterritorial. Um, As the last sort of issue we'll be talking about today gets into, uh, you can violate the federal material support for terrorism, and apparently even the New York State material support for terrorism laws. Uh, anywhere in the world, without with even the most tenuous connections to the United States, and so the the strength of the criminal prohibition is a lot more significant. If in fact the Biden administration moves forward to designate them as a, a foreign terrorist organization, there's been some legislative effort to to push for that. Um, there's the HARM Act that was introduced uh, last Congress, and and there is some precedent for this. Uh, Diane Feinstein actually uh, a resolution sponsored by Diane Feinstein in the Senate about 10 years ago, was really one of the principal reasons that the Haqqani network was ultimately designated as a foreign terrorist organization, uh, something that the Obama administration was, in a sense, kind of reticent to do for a long time because of the Haqqani's sort of unique status in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So there's definitely a lot of pressure there. Why the Biden administration is not crossing that threshold is... Is kind of a mystery. Um, There there does seem to be this resistance to characterizing Russia's activities, particularly in Ukraine, uh, but Russia's activities generally as a kind of terrorism, even though, you know, the, the duck seems to be quacking.
1: Yeah, I'll just
2: say, I mean, it really is worth emphasizing just how awful a lot of Wagner's exploits are and pointing to that same uh, New York Times piece that that you referenced, Michelle. It's essentially that Wagner recruited people who were in Russian prisons to fight with them in the war in Ukraine. Um, And then in the case of at least one person, when he deserted on the front line And was traded back to Russia. Yeah, I mean, it's a snuff film. They're describing cold-blooded murder in a really, really gruesome way. Um, They've also been involved in similar actions across Africa. I'm not precisely sure where, but I know it's in in multiple countries, I believe, in, in the center of the continent. They've been involved in various disinformation operations, which is not nearly as severe, but still worth worth flagging. And it's also worth mentioning that they're run by uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is often known as Putin's chef, because uh, he also runs a catering business. And uh, people who were following the Russia investigation back in the day will recall that he was also behind the internet research agency uh, that ran efforts to interfere in the 2016 US election all of which is which is to say that not only is wagner sort of unbelievably awful but it's also extremely closely linked to the russian state and to putin personally uh, which kind of leads me back to, I mean, the same question that I, I just asked in the previous segment, you know, is is there any concern or do either of you have any concern or have you seen any response from Russia about the fact that this organization that is so closely linked to the Kremlin has been designated in such a way or it does the fact that the Kremlin is kind of nominally keeping kind of an arm's length Prevent that blowback, or could that help explain why the Biden administration has been hesitant to to use the T word, as you said, Michelle? That somehow uh, using this designation is will not piss off Putin, but the other one will.
1: You know, my suspicion is that there's a common answer to all of this, but it actually has less to do with Russia than it does with third party states that have relationships with Russia. You know, this particular designation is notable because it's specifically against the Wagner Group. It specifically, you know, blocks its assets, installs a lot of potential financial penalty for groups that engage with it to various degrees, but it doesn't fully implicate the scope of what certain other measures might. So, uh, in 2019, the Trump administration amended the SDGT, the specially designated global terrorist regime to allow for more easily secondary sanctions, a variety of measures against particularly financial institutions that are engaged in transactions with designated SDGTs. Those groups would already be at risk of potential designation under both the prior SDGT regime and I think the TCO regime as it's structured, which is looks a lot like the old SDGT regime as I looked at them kind of side by side earlier today. But- my, I su- it's kind of my suspicion is that given that you have the Wagner Group operating in a lot of parts of Africa and other countries around the world, with which the United States is actively trying to get some degree of cooperation with anti-Russia measures, but is walking a very difficult line about you know getting them to vote for UN General Assembly resolutions, um, getting them to voice rhetorical support, but not pushing them to engage in sanctions measures. My suspicion is that opening the door to potential secondary sanctions, even though they are discretionary, even though it's something they could do under AEPA already if they were to amend the underlying executive order for the transnational criminal organization's designation regime. My, my suspicion is because it would be so readily available to the Treasury Secretary, they're worried about opening the can of worms and bringing additional political pressure to impose those measures, which would be of concern to a lot of kind of third-party nations that still have relationships with, with the Wagner Group, with Russia more generally. So that's why I think the TCO or the STGT regime might make sense in this particular case although again we'll see where it goes like this is this is really the most recent step in a progression of new measures that have been slapped against the Wagner group we've also seen export controls we've seen designation as a party of concern in regards to religious freedom because of some involvement uh, in Africa. I can't remember exactly where. Uh, so so it's happened. It, it's kind of been an escalating set of measures, but I think that might be why they opted this direction other than the SDGT. The other factor, which is the allergy to the T word that Michelle's already alluded, I think has to do with the broader regime. Similarly, that's around terrorism. If you were to designate the Wagner group in SDGT or in FTO, I don't think you would actually get a lot more useful measures to target them that you couldn't actually already do under IEPA, under the TCO regime, or frankly, under the variety of anti-Russia regimes, many of which already target Prigozhin and other people associated with Wagner Group could be used more broadly against them. But what it would do is that it would implicate and make the case much stronger to that Russia itself is sponsoring terrorism and implicate the state-sponsored terrorism designation. That's a statutory-based designation that we've seen Russia which Congress get very kind of heated about seen a lot of proposals to force the administration to make this designation, but that kind of real negative repercussions, um, at least on two fronts. On one front, it does, is taken as kind of a signal that Um, You know, there are all these measures, uh, secondary sanctions that any sort of engagement essentially with a designated state sponsor of terrorism can trigger all sorts of criminal and other penalties. I think that's a little overstated because, again, you could recreate most of those with AIPA authorities if you wanted to, um, but this would kind of ratchet them up to the highest degree at least. But more importantly, potentially, is that it would open up all this domestic litigation because it would strip Russia's sovereign immunity for the variety of the assets that are held in the United States for U.S.-based, us national. National claimants. So, would it mean that a lot of frozen Russian assets that right now the United States is trying to use as leverage against Russia and is trying to preserve as potential reparations for Ukraine down the road would all of a sudden be exposed to domestic litigation? Now, you know, they could designate Wagner Group an FTO and not designate Russia a state sponsored terrorism. I'm sure they could. But given the amount of political pressure, I suspect they see that that once they make the initial capitulation of this is a terrorist group and that right now has very transparent relationships with the Russian state, the you know, political basis on which they can withhold SST designation becomes much more tenuous, much weaker, and lots of negative policy consequences follow. And generally, I think it really reflects the fact that we have a anti-terrorism legal regime that was designed by Congress, and by the executive branch in different degrees, to target a particular type of threat, which is a not necessarily state-associated, you know, independent terrorist groups. And now we're trying to leverage it to a different group with a different set of geopolitical dynamics. And, you know, these measures aren't one size fits all. There's a reason why they may want to not invoke the, you know, much more pre-articulated uh, terrorism-related authorities and instead focus on AIPA and using that in a way that's much more customizable, which seems to be what they're doing.
0: Yeah, I certainly get that. I, I don't. I think that's all right. And I think the, um, the political calculations and diplomatic calculations that are being made are, you know, I think sound. I, I, don't, I, I, mean, I, I can't really dispute anything you said as being reasonable. I do, to some extent, worry, though, that being too clever about it also has its own costs. Uh, I think there is probably something to be said for a certain amount of clarity that when you have a group like the Wagner Group acting like Hezbollah, right, which has always been essentially a state-sponsored terrorist organization with, you know, complex political... International relationships, you know, there's a party in Lebanon that it basically is part of Hezbollah. That sort of lacking that clarity in in one case, I think, can compromise your you know ability to even have credibility in negotiating with our international partners over, for example, ramping up Russian sanctions um, and cracking down on groups like Wagner, because. For as much as, you know, we can sort of say, well, is Wagner entirely, do they entirely sort of fit the mold of Al Qaeda, which is certainly what the modern sanctions, you know, terrorist sanctions regime is built around. Do they really fit the model of the Zetas, right? They're not a drug cartel. It's not, it's not organized crime in the sense of, you know, international profiteering and trafficking in the same ways that we, you know, ordinarily think of, you know, the, the Yakuza and the other people who are on the, or the other organizations that are on the TCO list. And so there does seem to be this kind of almost strange like it is a ratcheting up, and so I think that's probably good. It's in the right ratcheting in the right direction. But to sort of say, well, we're gonna we're gonna slap Wagner for violating religious freedom rights and we're going to say we we don't like the way they're operating because they're like the Yakuza just seems Like there's a BS factor to that, which I think actually might hurt American credibility in trying to get partner nations to take the threat that Wagner sort of uniquely poses as essentially a state-sponsored terrorist organization with incredible capabilities to take that threat as seriously as perhaps foreign countries should.
2: Another question I have here, this is kind of bringing again our two, two first topics together, is what we see as the potential dynamics from Congress here. And what I mean by that is that, you know, early in the Ukraine war, there it felt like there was often a dynamic where a lot of folks in Congress were really raring to go on backing Ukraine and supporting Ukraine in often increasingly aggressive ways and the administration was really the one putting the brakes on it for fear of escalating into a dangerous possession with Russia. Now the dynamic has changed, mostly insofar as the new House Republicans who are now in control, I think not, not universally, but there is a, a stronger and louder block of sort of, I don't even know what to call them, anti, they're not, like really anything other than sort of vaguely anti-Biden and therefore Biden is providing help to Ukraine and therefore we we don't like that. Um but they're they're essentially pulling in the opposite direction whatever we want to call that direction. And so whereas previously I might have said, you know, perhaps we might be concerned that there would be voices in Congress pushing for even, you know, pulling out the T word Moving in a more aggressive direction, maybe that's less of a concern now. I don't know. I'm I'm curious what you both think on that. Acknowledging, of course, that um, if I'm understanding correctly, all of these are sort of actions that can be taken entirely by the executive, and this is really just a question of political pressure from Congress rather than Congress actually taking any uh, sort of substantive action.
0: Yeah, the, the Harm Act itself is kind of an interesting law that, in terms of actually attempting to direct. The State Department to list Wagner as a terrorist organization. Um, That's a bit unique. It's not obviously constitutional to me. I think there's at least an interesting open debate about can uh, Congress, in essence, direct a member of the State Department to make a certain designation. Ultimately, Congress could just designate them themselves, but that's not quite what the Harm Act does, interestingly enough. And even the uh, the Feinstein bill, which which had the effect in uh, I think it was a 2012 of essentially leading to the designation of the Haqqani network, didn't actually force it. It was sort of like a sense of Congress that the Haqqani network should be designated as a foreign terrorist organization and Secretary Clinton um, sort of took that lead and went with it. but the domestic politics you know it's it's hard to know I write you, you do have sort of just the the anti Biden policies so anything, Uh, that Biden loves the, there's a certain faction of Congress is going to hate it because Biden loves it. And there are certainly lots of cheerleaders against, you know, US support for Ukraine, you know, on the right and on on the left, too, there is sort of a, you know, there are some interesting bedfellows around this, which to me, is it going to just a political matter, I think would make, you know, to the extent you're trying to head off concerns about you know, over escalating the US response, I think focusing on the really malign activities that Russia is engaged in, or that Russian agents like the Wagner group are engaged in, as opposed to trying always to frame everything in this global struggle of Ukraine versus Russia, uh, might actually be beneficial, uh, because it narrows the focus to, you know, and and it sort of forces the opponents of the administration to defend the Wagner group, right. (laughs) And, and that's not something um, I think most members of the House, and Senate would actually be willing to do. And so, so I, I do think there are political upsides to sort of focusing on, again, Russia's really, mal- the, the, the actions that Russia is taking that are really profoundly malign. I think you saw some of that in at the end of uh, December, when they actually did pass the expansion of the War Crimes Act to make it extraterritorial. That was, I think, done because there was a lot of evidence of Russian war crimes and the United States wanted to have the criminal law tools to be able to go after Russian war criminals, uh, without concerns about extraterritoriality and I think similar opportunities might present themselves for again focusing on organizations like the Wagner group who are essentially operating as a as a terrorist organization off the leash in Ukraine
2: so Michelle you kind of teased our our third topic which has to do with this very interesting case of a New York state prosecution of uh, Islamist preacher named uh, Abdullah al Faisal who is now on trial in Manhattan. For conspiring to provide support for terrorism. Uh, under, Under that description, if you ignore the fact that this is a New York State prosecution, that sounds very familiar. We've all seen plenty of cases involving material support prosecutions in the federal system. But as we said, this is in the New York State system. And the additional twist is that Faisal was not actually in Manhattan or indeed anywhere in New York during the, the time that this took place, the sort of jurisdictional hook has to do with NYPD investigators who were communicating with Faisal, pretending to be people who were interested in his teachings, perhaps interested in uh, going to join ISIS, and that that's kind of the jurisdictional hook here. Uh, So I believe, according to the New York Times, this is the the first case that New York has prosecuted without any sort of federal hook under this statute that's investigated solely by NYPD. And it is interesting for a, a number of reasons. Michelle, let me turn to you first. What do you make of this? Is this a... New York kind of overstretching the boundaries here? Is this, you know, the beginning of a new wave of state level material support prosecutions?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Is it the beginning of a new wave? Probably not. It's probably in part because, you know, if you actually read the indictment, this was a NYPD investigation that started in 2014, and that they have been slowly unspooling or that they did slowly spool for like five years before actually getting him arrested in Jamaica and extraditing him. And so just as a practical matter, it doesn't seem like something that the NYPD, as large as it is, and as sophisticated as a, of a counterterrorism unit as it has, actually has the resources to invest in, at least I hope not, as a taxpayer here in New York City, that this is not the sort of thing that they're spending most of their time doing. You know, is it novel? Yeah, it's very novel. And, and I think that novelty presents a couple issues that we can talk about. But one one sort of big one that sort of hangs in the back of my mind is, why was this not a federal prosecution? Why did this, you know, it's not as if the Justice Department and particularly the FBI has any hesitation about using undercover operations to, you know, in some cases, borderline and trap uh, individuals who might be seen as potentially dangerous under the terrorism laws. So why did they think this case was not worth a candle? And therefore, they give, you know, let the NYPD sort of, you know, take the run at it. That's an unanswered question. I actually don't know the answer to that. But it does sort of give me a certain amount of pause that this case, which is not a case involving someone who's plotting to do anything in New York, when you actually read the, um, you know, the indictment, it's a it's a material support case, and it's a conspiracy to commit material support case. So it's this sort of extra layer of Secondary liability because he was uh, essentially with these undercover New York uh, police officers, attempting to you know help them, encourage them, facilitate their ultimate going to ISIS to work or fight with ISIS uh, in Syria, and so that that's something that traditionally has the FBI has paid plenty of attention to, and so why the NYPD sort of you know grabbed the baton on this case is at least something that raises questions in my mind about if nothing else, law enforcement priorities and and how those are being allocated.
1: Yeah. And it really implicates kind of the underlying question here, which you already hinted at in uh, some of your comments in the last question or topic we were discussing, which is the idea of kind of preemption essentially, right? Like, is this the sort of thing that states are anticipated to be able to do by Congress when they enacted federal criminal terrorism laws, right? And the truth is we don't really know 100%, right? I mean, maybe there's something in legislative history I'm not aware of, but I'm not aware of there being a judicial ruling on this. You know, preemption doctrine is kind of notoriously squishy uh, and not super easy to dissect. And is a lot of in the eye of the beholder of the court and frankly – in the case like this, I suspect would hinge heavily on the position taken by the executive branch if and when it's litigated before the courts. But it's a kind of a hard question, right? On the one hand, you could see a case being made that this is a hard set of crimes to prosecute. And of course, you would want you know a village to raise this child of Prosecuting terrorism. And so you will decentralize and allow people, you know, a thousand flowers to bloom in combating terrorism in various regards. And I suspect maybe if you'd asked some people right after the 9 11 attacks for a couple of years, they would have said, yeah, sure, let, let a thousand flowers bloom. Let's, let's all of us go after terrorism to different degrees. I think a more reasonable view, uh, probably now, 20 years after the fact, and that people have gravitated towards is that combating terrorism actually intersects with a lot of other U.S. interests. It's a complicated, difficult issue. It raises lots of constitutional issues. It raises lots of human rights, international law issues and questions, and requires a little bit of a careful hand. And for that reason, you would not want a thousand flowers to bloom. You would not want a thousand cooks in the kitchen. You would want Somebody best positioned to evaluate the national interest to do this, and that's usually the federal executive branch. But, and then the politics around this are so difficult anyway. No president's going to want to weigh into a court and say that and say, no, we really think states shouldn't be able to do something like this. But they might if this were a really problematic case. It strikes me as this one isn't. I think probably the Justice Department or federal government would have gone to the New York State government and said, hey guys, cut it out. Don't make us go into court and actually argue you can't do this let's not bring this this particular case maybe they've done that with other cases that's why this is the first one it's the one that's kind of vil- vanilla enough to be brought but It's a really tricky policy question this raises. This particular prosecution, maybe not so much. It seems like a pretty straightforward case of material support. The biggest question is jurisdictional, because again, the hook is just that the police officers that asked this person for help connecting with someone to ISIS did so from the state of New York and claimed to be residents in the state of New York. That's the only hook I can find, um, which seems a little weak, but maybe enough for because the guy has been extradited and is now in New York State and they can exercise, you know, tag jurisdiction over him you know, it is like, I wouldn't be surprised if this succeeds and maybe it won't be raised the bigger policy questions because it's just such a sui generis case. But those are tricky policy questions. And I actually think it's worth thinking about in the other context where we think about terrorism maybe even more often these days in the domestic terrorism context cuz it's almost the mere opposite right like that's a case where actually there are real substantial constitutional barriers on the degree to which the federal government can you know completely federalize those sorts of offenses probably we don't 100% know but i suspect there are some at least and that where they really do rely upon coordination from local and state law enforcement to lead a lot of those investigations, both because it is highly decentralized sort of threat and is spread across the United States. And because of that, it's really the sort of a lot of, implicates a lot of the sort of crimes that states traditionally have primary jurisdiction over not the federal government. And so it's it's such a sharp contrast in, in how we approach two prongs of what we think of as the same phenomenon terrorism. It's really hard to, to balance out the different equities.
2: I mean, one, one additional complicating factor, which doesn't, I believe, appear in the New York Times' recent reporting about the case, but does show up in the 2017 article that was written when Faisal was first charged in New York State, is whether the federal government might have held back from pursuing the case. Because if you cast your mind back to... September 2017 or August 2017, when this was charged, the Attorney General was, of course, none other than Jeff Sessions, who had raised questions about whether terrorism cases should even be brought in civilian courts, um, or whether uh, military tribunals uh, should be used. So, Michelle, I'm sure you have thoughts about that. But what the what the Time story from 2017 suggests is that because Sessions had suggested that maybe suspected terrorists should be uh, tried in Guantanamo, that the federal government and the Justice Department were not hugely enthusiastic about beginning any federal terrorism prosecutions during that time that would require the massive administrative logjam that would be sending someone to Guantanamo and then figuring out what on earth to do with them once they were there. So I do wonder to what extent that played into the thinking.
0: Well, Jamaica is a lot closer to Guantanamo than it is to New York. So maybe that was at least part of their calculus. I, you know, it's it's a really strange case. On, you know, on the one hand, you know, screw this guy. He, he was clearly up to no good. And I, I, it's hard to feel too, sim- too much sympathy for him, and, particularly as a New Yorker. And I, and I would feel a lot less sympathy if, again, he was plotting to do something in New York. But I think one of the – I'm not sure this case would have been 100% viable in the federal system for – at least one major reason. And that is, so New York, you know, passed its material support law, which, you know, basically kind of tracks, you know, the the section uh, 2339 um, A and B uh, of the Federal Criminal Code, which are the sort of classic material support offenses. But they enacted it right after 2001, which is significant, because that's before the humanitarian law project litigation really got underway in the Ninth Circuit. And uh, a major consequence of the humanitarian law project litigation was not only the sort of famous Supreme Court decision in 2010, but it was a lot of legislative changes that Congress made along the way to narrow and clarify and make the provisions of material support, and indeed, what is material support, far more specific to avoid real First Amendment problems that the statute was identified to have in the Ninth Circuit, um, in the litigation ultimately leading up to the Supreme Court's decision. And the Supreme Court took those legislative revisions of the material uh, support statute and observed them and sort of said, look, these are very significant in clarifying the law and making it far more precise to avoid precisely the, you know, uh, free association and free speech problems that you might otherwise have. And, you know, what side of the line is this indictment on? You know, I, I, you know, I've seen enough of these indictments to to not be completely shocked that some of the major allegations are his essentially spreading propaganda. Um, there are a lot of spreading propaganda indictments um, under the material support statutes, but without even those statutory safeguards uh, that Congress put in place to sort of protect First Amendment interests, it strikes me that this this sort of again two thousand one era law is. It it sort of lacks a lot of the lessons learned that the federal government was able to develop in the course of doing terrorism prosecutions over the past 20 years, some of which I think are quite, you you know, important for civil libertarian reasons like freedom of speech. But also some of them are for just straightforward, how do you prosecute and get a strong and robust conviction that's going to stand up on appeal lessons that the federal government has learned so that, you know, you have... You know the statistics are you know various, but typically it's like a ninety-five to ninety-nine percent conviction rate uh, in these material support cases in federal court. And so maybe as someone who does have uh, a bit of experience with trying to bring material with the government bringing material support cases outside of the federal court system in kind of an experimental way, I I, I sort of you know put my hand on my wallet and hold it a little closer uh, because I'm afraid that there's going they're going to run into problems that they haven't foreseen just by virtue of the novelty of what they're trying to do.
1: And it's worth bearing in mind the kind of intelligence office within the New York Police Department that originated this case, bringing it forward, has run into lots of legal trouble over the years, most recently, most notably involved in a pretty high profile set of litigation around a bunch of surveillance activities they pursued against American Muslims in New Jersey, I think in the state of New York as well, and maybe in this kind of surrounding metropolitan area for which they've been kind of under a degree of judicial supervision for the last few years, or at least were for several years. I don't know if it's continuing. Um, so there's a little bit of a you know innovative element that has come back to bite them. You know, In this particular case, I, I don't know exactly what that hook might be, but there might be something there. I, I will say, if nothing else, the indictment we saw really hinges upon a lot of messages that's not particularly encouraging because a lot of the inferred meaning of these messages they're sending back and forth uh, that they cite is on the interpretation of terms like hijra and dar al harb which are kind of arabic terms that have different meanings uh and that the police department is saying in this context this meant assisting isis and they don't always mean that in a variety of other contexts now in this case this defendant is a well-known guy guy who's pretty well documented having pursued activities backing isis and other national terrorist groups in the uk in jamaica i you know i don't I don't have reason to doubt just by virtue of the focus on those terms that there's actually like a major evidentiary gap here but certainly we've seen you know federal government wrestle with making a lot more out of exchanges than might be appropriate in ways that can be pretty insensitive to Muslims and Arabic speakers and people who think about these terms in their broader context and the way they can be used in, in a non kind of malicious fashion and necessarily non-criminal fashion so the focus on that you know I think underscores again that these might not be it might not be the most sophisticated experience effort brought in this particular case, and that just means it might run into issues down, down the road, certainly if we were replicated in the future. Again, there may be a good reason to think it's not, though. Then again, New York is still funding this intelligence office, so so we don't really know. They, they seem to have decided it's worth some sort of long-term commitment for, to some degree, and maybe this is the tip of the spear for a broader effort. Well, folks... That is all the time we have for this conversation today, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think over in the week to come until we are back in your podcast devices. Quinta, what is your object lesson to share with us this week?
2: I would like to recommend another podcast, which I recently benched on. It is called Ooh, Shameless. No
1: competition.
2: <laughs> it's a very different podcast. Uh, it is called Shameless Acquisition Target. And it is by a long time, I think, executive in, in the podcast biz and and podcaster Laura Meyer. Uh, it is a delightful little romp that is essentially about her decision to cash in and sell out on podcasting those are her words not mine and uh, in order to buy a house and in the process it's sort of a, a walk through the guts of the podcasting industry Um, you know how how the sausage is made how the money is made and not made I found it very funny and lively it has a really distinct voice and I also learned a lot I should also say I uh, check this recommendation with um, our friends at the Goat Rodeo podcasting studio before I made it just to make sure I wasn't embarrassing myself. And I've been informed that Ian Enright is pro. So Shameless Acquisition Target, I highly recommend it. I think there are about eight episodes. I listened to the whole thing on a cross-country flight and it made the trip much more enjoyable.
1: I will say even the website for this podcast is kind of amazing. Oh, the merch is so good amazing they just says merch in all caps like every eight words and it's just bright colorful <laughs> flashes you know kind of like mcdonald's style just red and yellow designed to make you hungry and think of ketchup and mustard just to get you salivating over whatever it is this person selling so i'm excited to check it out I'm, it is on my list <laughs> for my object lesson i am wanted to shed some light on a musical artist that I actually was surprised to learn I have not actually mentioned because uh, she has been in my kind of constant playlist really for the last several years. Maybe I may have started listening to her before we started Ratsack 2.0, which may be why I haven't mentioned her. Uh, and that is a young woman named Katie Pruitt, uh, who is a fairly young, I think she's in her like mid-20s uh, musical artist, has just one album expectations that she released uh, in 2020. But that is... A phenomenal, phenomenal, absolutely rocking album that she is often classified as a country artist, which I don't think is quite right. She's got kind of like the Southern rock country vibe, um, very kind of like Neil Young, 70s, early 80s, like heyday of rock vibes, uh, which really shows through because she actually has a, a single where she does a couple covers of Neil Young that are phenomenally well executed, but very guitar heavy Really, really exciting, interesting stuff. And she sings like these kind of country rock influenced kind of classic rock sounding songs that are just phenomenal. And uh, I've been waiting and waiting for her to tour or to come out. She doesn't seem to like to tour very far east of like Western Virginia. That's the far closest she's gotten to D.C. that I've seen in the last few years, all the pandemic, et cetera. It's coming along. That makes it hard. But she's released a couple of phenomenal little singles along the way. There's one called Merry Christmas, Mary Jane, about being high on Christmas. That's very funny uh, and interesting. A lot more touching, interesting ones. Those Neil Young covers are great. But if I'm reading her Twitter account correctly, it seems that she is was in the studio recording an album as of like two weeks ago, meaning it may actually be coming to fruition, coming out, and then hopefully a tour to follow. So I will flag for you now. Check out Katie Pruitt. Uh, wherever you listen to music expectations, especially if you're into, into rock music or country tinge Americana style, style rock music. It's really phenomenal. I think one of the better albums I've listened to in a long time and get ready for the next album to drop because I'm really excited about it. And I will be, uh, probably not in the front row because I'm kind of old, but somewhere in the back, uh, if, and when she ever deigns to tour in the Washington DC metropolitan area or somewhere else I can reach readily. All right, Michelle, why don't you bring us home? What do you have to share with us this week?
0: So, so mine's less of a recommendation than it was just, it it is a cat. And so as you all probably know, it's Lunar New Year this, this year, uh, and this year is the year of the rabbit under the Chinese Zodiac, but in Vietnam and a few other Southeast Asian countries, it's the year of the cat instead of the rabbit. And the legend goes that Buddha, the reason the Chinese Zodiac does not have a cat is that the Buddha had all of the animals come and do a race. And that's how we get the animals of the Zodiac and that the rat and the cat used to be friends and they're both the smart animals and so they tricked the ox to carry them across the river so that they could get to the race but the sneaky rat kicked the cat off the ox so he did not get to the buddha in time and so the vietnamese uh basically want to sort of return the cat to its rightful place as the enemy of the rat and so returned it to its place Uh, essentially penalizing the rat for cheating and taking away the bunny's uh, place on the Chinese zodiac. Um, So I loved this story. I thought this, especially as the, the father of four year olds, this is a great sort of Lunar New Year story. But I also found and I think this is just as awesome. It may just be that the word for rabbit in Chinese is meow. Uh, it was basically said meow. Please listeners who actually speak Chinese, do not do not penalize me for my lack of tones. We'll put Michelle's Twitter Twitter handle in the show notes. You yes, can please, go ahead and it
1: directly on the pronunciation. Uh, Nowhere. No need to loop <laughs> us in on that. Please turn to him directly.
0: <laughs> and sure enough, the word for cat in Vietnamese is meow. And so they, when they heard rabbit, they heard meow uh, and cat be- and so the, the rabbit became uh, a cat. But in Vietnam and, and many other places in Southeast Asia, this is the year of the cat. And so happy year of the cat uh, or of the bunny, depending on your reference.
1: I love it. That is that is a phenomenal story. That's
2: a delightful story.
1: I like that calendar. I I feel like, you know, Chinese calendars and other calendars are, are so much more interesting than our particular calendar. We got to get some some more kind of symbology wrapped into this to some extent. But 2023, I guess, is fine, too. That's OK. Well, folks, that, for better or for worse, brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. And while you're at it, visit LawfareBlog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series and be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host Quinta and our special guest, Michelle Paradis, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.